So we'll be reading verses uh, 11 and following today. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, last week at our church, uh, we had a service called Testimonies. And at that service, uh, we had uh, stories of seven ladies of um, just stories of how God had impacted their lives and how they came to know Jesus. And it was just an incredible service. It's online if you didn't uh, get a chance to be there. And uh, just an encouragement and just a time of strengthening our faith. But as I like thought about that message and thought about those testimonies and thinking about what I was going to talk about uh, this week at Church in the Park, I was a little convicted and I was uh, reminded of the fact that I'd never actually given my testimony as a pastor publicly. And I thought about it, and I think there's a few reasons why I had never done it. Number one, I think it was insecurity. Um, that I was, have a lot more faith in the Bible than my story. Um, part of it was I just didn't feel like my story was that interesting. Like I've heard stories of people who came to know Jesus and um, stories like, you know, someone who's like, I'm, I was strung out on drugs, and uh, I was, you know, just went down the wrong path. I left my wife. I did all these things. I sold my kidney to the devil. And then Jesus met me, and I'm a different person. And, and praise the Lord when that happens. It's incredible to hear stories like that. But I've heard stories like that, and I'm, I, I look at my story, and I'm like, how does that compare? Like, it's, it's not that interesting. It seems to me more ordinary. But what I feel like God has been teaching me is that we all have a story and that God uses each of our stories to be an encouragement to others. And so I felt convicted to tell my story today, even though it might not be as interesting as some. 
And my hope is that the story is an encouragement to some of us who maybe we don't relate to that story. Maybe we don't relate to that story of, uh, you know, kind of being a prodigal. So I grew up in a loving Christian home, uh, have wonderful parents. And when I say I grew up in a Christian home, I mean I really grew up in a Christian home. Like not going to church on Christmas and Easter, we went to church like three times a week. So we'd go to Sunday school, and then after Sunday school, we'd have the worship service, then we'd have a night service, and then we'd have like Awana Kids Club during the week. And so I was in church a lot. Also went to a Christian school. And I'm grateful for that, grateful for the, for the, um, the, the upbringing that I had, that, that I was introduced to Jesus at a young age. But the reality was by the age of seven, I had been saved, and I was saved 37 times. That is, I remember the first time I, I came to know Jesus, or I invited Christ into my heart. My dad was watching the Ten Commandments, and he asked me, do you, do you want to invite Jesus into your heart? And I said, sure, be happy to. Sounds good. And being that I was in church a lot, and Christian school, there were a lot of messages that I heard, and they would say, do you want to be sure that you know Jesus? Do you want to be sure that you go to heaven? And honestly, I wasn't that sure. So each time I would pray just to make sure that, you know, it worked, make sure it clicked, make sure I did the right things. So I was saved a number of times. I would keep praying a prayer over and over again. By the time I was 12 years old, I had memorized about 300 Bible verses, knew a lot of the scriptures, and received an award at, at Awana, uh, the Timothy Award, and... Um, but then when I was eight years old, there was something that happened that just really rocked my world. Um, when I was eight years old, my family went on a vacation to Philadelphia to a place called Sesame Place, uh, Sesame Street um, theme park. And it was one of those vacations that was just kind of picture perfect. Everything was just, you could have planned it better. Uh, I remember just having a great time at Sesame Place. I, I remember just even the small details, like the, the hotel pool was just like the perfect temperature. And, and at the end of the trip, it was time to go home. And uh, we, I think we went to Friendly's or somewhere else. We went to see a movie, uh, Babe, uh, that kind of dates it, Babe the Pig. And so we, so we had this amazing time. And then we're headed home on the thruway. And as, I, as I'm sitting in my car, just hanging out or whatever, I hear, feel this ginormous bump, this ginormous jolt. I have no idea what's happening. The next thing I know, uh, the doors of the van are being opened and a stranger is coming and pulling me out of the car. They brought me to, that, that person brought me to his car and I remember just looking around, bewildered, throwing up and just looking at the sirens, having no idea what had happened. It turned out what had happened was uh, there was a young lady who was driving her boyfriend's Camaro and she wanted to see how fast it would go. Um, and she got up to 105 miles an hour, lost control of the vehicle, crossed over the median of the thruway and hit our car uh, almost head on. By all accounts, our whole family should have been dead. Miraculous that, that any of us survived, um, but we all did. We all survived, we all had serious injuries. Uh, my brother, who was three years old, had a subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, bleeding on the brain, something that often kills adults if they get something like that. Um, but by God's grace, he was okay. Um, my dad had a severe concussion as well as knee injuries. Um, his 
concussion was so severe that he didn't even know that he had children. Um, my mom was, was, uh, was hurt the worst. She had several broken bones, including a broken knee, um, broken arm, severe facial trauma to the point, point where she was unrecognizable. Um, I had severe injuries as well. I had severe internal bleeding, a broken hip. They had to do emergency surgery to remove part of my large intestine. And uh, we went home and my family was really hurting, uh, of course. And uh, being that I was young and my brother were, was, were young, um, we started to kind of bounce back physically pretty quickly. My mom, it took her a lot longer because she had uh, such severe injuries. Um, but I started to get physically a lot better. But mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I was going in the opposite direction. Um, I started to think about death a lot at eight years old. Since my parents were badly injured, I, I felt like you know, there was no one to take care of me. I felt like I, I was almost on my own, even though I had loving parents. I worried about something bad happening again. And even though I knew this was something that was outside of my control, outside of my family's control, there's nothing we could have done about it. I convinced myself that I had to do everything in my power to make sure something bad didn't happen again. To make sure I avoided this kind of trauma, these kind of circumstances again. And as a result, I started to, to develop obsessive compulsive disorder. I, I would wash my hands over and over again until sometimes my hands were raw because I was afraid that maybe I was going to touch something that was contaminated and maybe I was going to get somebody sick and maybe even they were going to die. So I was terrified that I was going to do something wrong, that I was going to hurt someone, that something like this was going to happen again. I was so afraid of doing something wrong, I was constantly apologizing to my parents, even for things that I didn't really do wrong. It was a very difficult time. Over, over time, the outward behaviors lessened. I s stopped washing my hands so many times. I stopped apologizing profusely, but the worry continued. And as I got into, you know, as I was in school, this, this worry kind of manifested in how I studied and how I prepared. I, I was terrified of becoming a failure. I was terrified of something bad happening again. And so this fear drove me to work very hard. Even though I had just about straight A's, every test that I took, I was terrified that this was going to be the time where I was exposed. This was going to be the time where I was uh, shown to be a failure. This is the time when I was going to do something wrong and something bad was going to happen. Again, that fear drove me to do really well. I was a salutatorian in my high school class, but I didn't find any joy in it. I was simply doing it because of fear, because I was afraid if I didn't do the right thing, something bad was going to happen. But it wasn't just you know, physical and, and mental. It was also spiritual as well. I, I was worried that I was going to do something wrong and Maybe that I didn't really believe in Jesus. Maybe I did the wrong thing. And I would see commands in the Bible that I didn't understand, like commands to love God and love neighbor. And as an eight-year-old, I'm thinking questions like, what does it mean to love someone? And how do I know that I love those around me? How do I know that I love God? How can I be sure? And I'd ask, like, what if I don't actually love God? And so I had this fear as well that I was going to make a mistake and do the wrong thing and then God was going to cast me out, cast me into hell. I was terrified of it. And I remember I know the truth. I've memorized 300 verses. But what I knew in my head never registered in my heart. I continued 
to go to church each and every week, but I approached God less like a son approaching his father and more like someone addressing a judge. We sang songs like Amazing Grace, and honestly, it didn't make any sense to me. How could grace be so amazing? Because I was so terrified. I I thought I had to do the right things, and if I was going to make mistakes, then God was going to cast me out. So why was grace so amazing if it was all dependent upon what I had to do? It didn't make sense to me. I approached God with fear rather than with love. And when I was nearing the end of high school, I felt like God was calling me into ministry. And uh, I actually went to uh, study psychology and communications at first. And then I transferred to study, uh, study God's word and go into ministry. And I wish I could tell you that um, as a pastor, I, I originally when I went to be a pastor, I wish I could tell you that I became a pastor because I loved God so much and loved people so much. And, and not that that wasn't true. But the biggest reason I wanted to become a pastor was because I was afraid of going to hell. And I was afraid of God. And I was afraid uh, that I was going to do something wrong and God was going to cast me away from his presence. And I didn't have this peace in my heart. And I thought, maybe if I become a pastor, maybe if I study a lot, maybe if I learn more about God's word, maybe if I get really close to him, then I'll have peace in my heart. It was partially true. When I started studying the Bible, I remember taking a class in the book of Romans, and I had this very kind professor who walked me through what faith actually meant. I had thought that faith was something that I had to do, that it was a, a work that I had to do almost, that I was responsible for my salvation. And I talked to this professor, professor who was very loving. His name was George. And I asked these questions, and I knew all the Sunday school answers. I knew the Bible inside and out, but I was looking for something deeper. Like, how can I really, really know and be sure that I know Jesus? How can I have peace in my heart? And he explained to me that faith is not about holding on to your salvation. It's about trusting God to catch you, not relying on your own efforts, but on Christ. Things started to make sense for me a little bit, but I still struggle. Still struggle to this day, by the way. After college, I went to seminary, and while I was in seminary, at one point in seminary, I had a lot of challenges and stress in my life. And those challenges and stress brought out some of those OCD tendencies once again and extreme worry. But during that time, I heard a message by the late Tim Keller um, about a passage of the Bible that I'd heard, read a million times, the story of the prodigal son. And it started to make sense of my story. Again, I'd heard it a million times, and to me, the story seemed so simple, so basic. A son comes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. In essence, what he's saying, Father, I wish you were dead. Father gives him the inheritance. He goes on his way. He spends all that he has on riotous living. There's a famine in the land. And then he comes to his senses. He realizes that, It was good to be in the father's house. He's feeding the pigs, and he longs even to eat the food that the pigs are eating. And so he comes home. And as he's coming home, the father runs out and embraces him and and brings him back into the family. And and it seems like such a simple story that some people are prodigals. 
they leave the father's house, they do bad things, but if they repent, they can come back to the father's house. And in my mind, I had a real clear picture of what a prodigal was. In my mind, in, in my family, there was one prodigal, and that was my uncle. Uh, my uncle who passed away several years ago, um, he was a prodigal. He was a womanizer, a thief, addicted to drugs and alcohol, uh, always kind of conniving, always kind of taking advantage of people. And I remember thinking as a young child, like, he's a prodigal. He's the prodigal. And I remember thinking at one point I need to share the gospel with him. And thankfully, my mom stopped me from, from sharing it in the way that I was going to. Uh, I remember th thinking about going and sharing the gospel with him, and I was going to go up and ask him, so, Uncle, why do you do so many bad things? Because in my mind, like, he, he's a bad guy. He's a prodigal. He does these bad things. But what I didn't realize was that I was lost as well. I didn't understand that I needed Jesus. I needed the Father just as much as my uncle did. Yes, I knew the Bible. I knew that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it didn't make sense in my mind. I mean, I knew that I was a sinner. I, I worried about being a, the fact that I was a sinner. I worried about things that I had done wrong, but I wasn't a prodigal. I, I, this story didn't really make sense to me. It, it was like I didn't fit in this story. Even compared to other kids, I was really well-behaved and a good kid. Outwardly, I had never done anything that was that terrible, that wrong. Tried to do the right thing, and it seemed like I hadn't run from the Father's house. And so this story, it felt like it didn't apply to me. It was for prodigals. It was for people like my uncle who had gone astray, not for people who had grown up in the church, not for people who knew a lot of the Bible. But I missed something very important about this story, and it's told right at the beginning. And sometimes I think we lose it because it says the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. But there's an important detail right at the beginning, and it says in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. There's a man who has two sons. He doesn't say, oh, there's a man who is a prodigal who left the father's house. There's a man who had two sons. And what this indicates is that the prodigal son is not the only character in this story. And I would submit that the prodigal son is not even the prominent character in this story. Because in this story, we see that Jesus is not addressing prodigals. He's not telling this parable to prodigals. He's telling this parable to Pharisees, to scribes, to religious leaders. He's telling this parable to people who had gone to the synagogue regularly, who'd gone to church a lot. People who knew a lot of the Bible, probably even more than 300 verses. People who, from the outside, probably were well-respected, thought to be really good people. People who never outwardly did anything wrong. People who didn't see themselves as lost. People who were a lot like me. So in this story, the prodigal son comes home, and while he's still in the distance, the father runs towards him, throws his arms around him, kisses him, puts a robe on his finger, a robe, robe around him, puts a ring on his finger, kills the fatted calf, throws a big extravagant party. But look at how the older brother responds. He's out in the field. He hears about this great celebration. And it says in verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. He's angry, and he does something very similar to what the prodigal son does. He leaves the father's house. He stays outside the father's house. The younger brother is just a little bit more direct about it. 
The younger brother says, give me my share of the inheritance. I'm leaving. But the older brother also leaves the father's house. And he isn't interested in a relationship with the father. Neither one is interested in a relationship with the father. Most, both of them are most concerned with the father's stuff rather than the father. The younger brother, again, says, give me my share of the inheritance. The older brother is more subtle. His response seems a little bit more noble. He says in verse 29, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf. Notice what the older brother does. He says, this son of yours. Who is this son of yours? It was his brother. He doesn't care about his brother. He doesn't love his brother. Otherwise, he would be celebrating. He should be the master of ceremonies. He should have been out looking for his brother. But he doesn't care when the, father, when the, when the younger brother comes home. He's upset. Because the younger brother has squandered the possessions of the father. Now, the father... For his part, he's rejoicing as well. He's rejoicing. His son was lost, and now he's come home. But here's the kicker. What happened was, again, the younger brother was given his share of the inheritance. What, so what's left over? What belonged to the older brother? Everything would now go to the older brother. And so if the younger brother is going to come back, it's going to mean it's going to cost the older brother something. And he's not happy about that. See, the older brother isn't concerned about the father. He's not concerned about the fact that the father is rejoicing. He's not rejoicing with the father. He's not concerned that his, his brother has come back. He's not rejoicing with his brother. All he's concerned about is the father's stuff. And he doesn't tell the father that outrightly, but he uses his morality as a way to get the father's stuff. He says, I've served you these many years and you didn't even give me a young goat. I've earned it. I've earned this stuff. And now my brother is coming back and he's going to squander it. And so he doesn't love the father and he doesn't love the brother. He doesn't care about the father's story. And in this passage, we see that there's two ways to avoid a relationship with the father. The first is by being a prodigal, leaving the father's house. But the second is by being a religious person, a moral person. Some are prodigals. I'm not. I'm an older brother. I'm a religious person. See, I, I feared God. I respected God. I wanted to obey God. But I didn't love God. I didn't love God. How could I love God? How could I love God when I had this vision of him that he was just waiting to cast me out from his presence? That he was trying to get me to jump through these hoops, and if I didn't jump through the right hoops, he was just going to send me to hell. How could I believe in this God was, who was so demanding? But then I discovered something exceedingly beautiful. What I discovered was this passage shows us that the father not only goes out to the younger brother, but he also goes out to the older brother as well. Yes, he goes and he throws his arms around the younger brother, but he also goes and he pleads with the older brother, come back, come into my house. And we see in this story that there's something missing. There's something missing in this story because in Luke chapter 15, we see three parables. 
There's a fair, the parable of the lost sheep. There's a parable of the lost coin, and then there's the parable of the lost son. And what's missing in this story is, is that in the parable of the, of the lost sheep, there's somebody that's out looking for the lost sheep. In the parable of the lost coin, there's someone that's looking for the coin that is lost. But in the parable of the lost son, no one is looking for the lost son. The one in the story that who should have been looking for the lost son was the older brother. That was his responsibility. It was the older brother's responsibility to take care of the family, to do what the father couldn't. And this omission, what's missing in this story, is the true elder brother, Jesus, who left his homeland, who left the father's house to go and to seek out younger brothers and to seek out younger brothers, the older brothers. He came to people who were lost, who knew they were lost, but he also came to die for people who tried to keep all the rules and yet find themselves empty, broken. People who fail to love God and people because they're too busy keeping the rules, trying to measure up, always fear, fe fearing they'll fail, always knowing that there's something broken. As I began to realize the price that Jesus had paid for me as the true elder brother, for the first time in my life, I started to love Jesus. How could I not? How could I not love him? When I realized that he wasn't the God that I thought he was, that he wasn't a God who was ready to cast me off in a moment, but a God who was willing to do anything to bring me back home. How could I not love a God like that? A God who sent his son, the true elder brother, to live a perfect life and die on the cross for me. Some people have a life verse, a verse that's really meaningful to me, uh, to, to them, and, and to me, Galatians 2.20 is that life verse. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. The reason this verse spoke so powerfully to me, speaks so powerfully to me, is because it's a reminder, it's not about me. It's not about my performance. It's not about my perfection. It's not about trying hard to make sure that something bad doesn't happen. It's about trusting the one who loved me and gave everything for me, who sought me out. There's two ways to be lost. The first is by being a prodigal. And here's the thing about being a prodigal. Generally, prodigals know that they're lost. The prodigal son in this story, he makes the deliberate and unequivocal choice to leave the father's house. He squanders the father's possessions, and he finds himself at the lowest point in his life, ready to eat pig slop. And he knows he's made a mistake. He knows that he's lost. And of course, if you're here today and you're a prodigal, you have a history, you have a past. The good news of the gospel is that no matter how far you've run from God, God is going to run towards you when you return. He's not waiting to condemn you. He's waiting to embrace you with his love. So if you're a prodigal today, you can come and find grace. Others of us who aren't prodigals, maybe we don't even realize the fact that we're lost. I, I never realized I was lost. I was a good Christian boy. I knew a lot of the scripture. I went to church all the time. 
How could I really not understand the gospel? How could I be lost? There's a man by the name of Marx Barnes, and uh, his now named Steve Carter. He was born in 1977, and he had no idea, not even an inkling, that he was a lost, missing child. But he finally discovered in January 2011 when he did a search on missingkids.com, and he found himself staring at a composite image created to uh, confirm his identity. He said he got chills when he looked at that image staring back at him. A DNA test ultimately confirmed his identity. He had gone missing when he was six months old. Um, in 1977, his mother placed him in a stroller and went for a walk on one of the Hawaiian islands. And through a number of strange events, his, his mother was placed in a psychiatric hospital. He was placed in protective care in an orphanage. And he ended up growing up 30 miles from the place where his parents had lived. And all that time, he had no idea that he was a missing child. In fact, he wasn't even interested in understanding anything about his upbringing. You know, he knew he was, uh, you know, he, he didn't know, really know anything about his biological parents, and he was kind of content not knowing. But there's only one reason that he found that he was lost, and that was because someone was looking for him. His sister had kind of made it her life goal to find her lost brother. She convinced F, uh, officials to reactivate the investigation after an extended period of time. That led to the composite image that Carter discovered online. He was lost his whole life and didn't know it. And the only reason he was found was because someone was looking. Religious people, people like me, people who maybe even know the Bible inside and out, gone to church regularly, don't always know that they're lost. Because outwardly, they might look better than everyone else. They don't have a history. They haven't done anything terrible. They think they're on the inside. They think they're on the, in the Father's house. They do religious things, but they're outside the feast. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes not just for younger brothers, but also for older brothers. He comes for the prodigals, but he also comes for the religious, the Pharisee. He came for us all. As I look at my story and reflect on my story, I've come to realize that, yes, my story is not as interesting as some. But what I've come to realize is it's just as miraculous, if not more miraculous, because I didn't even know I was lost. But praise the Lord that Jesus changes everything, and we're going to sing a song in just a moment. And I love the song, the lyrics of the song. Uh, it's called My Victory. The beginning of it says, you came for criminals. You might exchange that prodigals. You came for prodigals. But it continues, and every Pharisee. You came for hypocrites, even one like me. The good news is Jesus came for us all. And no matter where we are today, whether we're a prodigal who's left the Father's house and found ourselves at the lowest point in our life, or whether we're a religious person who's tried to do the right things and yet found ourselves empty, there's hope for us, there's grace for us in the arms of the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you that you are a God who runs to the prodigal, who runs to the older brother, and pleads for us to come home and to experience your grace, Lord. 
We thank you for your incredible love that was shed on the cross for us as you sent your son to leave your home, to leave the glories of heaven, to come and to seek and to save us. Lord, help us to never move beyond your love and your gospel. Help us to always be in awe, to always be amazed of the love that you have for us. For those of us who maybe don't know Jesus today, Lord, I pray that today would be the the, the moment that maybe you would open their eyes to see that they are lost, that they do need you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. In Christ's name I pray.